Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. And you may wonder, why in the world do you stay right in 1 Corinthians at Christmas time? <laughs> Well, again, we know the Christmas story. And, and if we go back and re-preach it, we just try to think of 100 ways to redo the same message. But we've moved on from the cradle. We've moved on from the cross now to the crown, and we are bowing under Him, and we want to know how to live day by day in our, in our lives. And so today, part two of Should I Marry or Remain Single? Now, whether you were here last time or not, the whole passage of 1 Corinthians 7 leads us to a correct view of God's institution of marriage. God ordained marriage. And if you're not careful, when you come to 1 Corinthians 7, you can come up with all kinds of error by misinterpreting and misunderstanding what's going on. We saw in the last time in verse 1, Paul said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, Paul was referring, as he said there, to a letter filled with questions that the church of Corinth had written to him. Now, the problem is, as we realized the last time, we don't have the letter, and therefore we don't have the questions. We only have the answers. Now, isn't that an interesting situation? You come into chapter 7, you don't have the questions, you only have the answers that he gives to the questions, so you have to be very, very careful as you proceed. It's a little slow here. And you know by his answers what the questions must have been. It had to have been filled with questions concerning marriage, divorce, remarriage, a celibacy, or singleness because of the answers that are given in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The statement that Paul gives in verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, could only have been in the context of a man and a woman who are not in a marriage relationship with one another. Had to have been. You say, how do you know that? Well, if you'll follow the context on down, and we'll see it, even a little bit of it this morning, not only is sexual intimacy encouraged in marriage, but it's commanded. So he couldn't have been talking to a man who's married to the woman. That's not what he's talking about. So whether single or married, he was talking about a question they must have asked of a man touching a woman, a woman who's not, not involved in a particular marriage relationship with the man concerned. Well, why do we say that again? Because of the way Paul answers the questions. Now, 
Furthermore, the word touch that he uses there in verse 1 is not the word to just simply touch somebody. It's to touch with influence. There's sexual innuendo in this touch. The word is haptome. We went back to Matthew in chapter 5 and we realized where Jesus, when he talks about adultery, starts with the eye, then he moves to the hand and you begin to realize how all that's coordinated here. A person begins to have a roving eye and then that begins to affect his touching in his hand. And there's more to that touch than just a touch. As we said last time, there's a hug and there's a hug. <laughs> One of you walked up to me this morning and said, I want to give you a hug. Not a hug. <laughs> I like that. You're catching it. <laughs> you got it. So the touch he's meaning there is not to kind of just touch somebody. It's to touch with something, a purpose behind it, with a sexual innuendo behind it. So the question becomes easier to understand by the answer that Paul gives in the context of a man and a woman who are not married to each other. It is good for a man not to touch with a sexual innuendo or other influences another woman. No, sir, that's, 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 that's forbidden. So we enter into verse 2. Let's look at verse 2. He says, But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now, the three things that I want us to see today, we're going to actually look into verse 3. Three things, again, as we continue to inch along, should I remain single? Or should I marry? Because this had to be on the minds of those people coming out of the terrible context and culture that they lived in. And we looked at that the last time. First of all, to begin with, let's give a definition of immorality. We have got to do this, folks. We have got to do it. To bring sanity back into people's minds and in the way that they view physical intimacy, particularly in marriage. 1 Corinthians 2, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. The Greek phrase for because of immoralities is thea, thank you Wayne, tas porneas. The word thea is translated because in the New American Standard and that's not a bad translation. Normally thea, which comes from duo, means through and involves a separation between something. For instance, the word diavolos, the devil. Thea means through and between, to separate, and then balos, to cast, to cast in between and divide. So you get the idea that thea has a separation involved in it. But here it has more the idea of account on the account of, for the sake of, or because of. But you can't divorce it from the idea of separation. The King James Version does something interesting here. It says, avoid, and it's in italics, fornication. The idea again of separating yourself from immorality. Avoid fornication. Now, there should be a separation of believers from immoralities, from the word porneus, which is fornication, which, which is the idea of immoral behavior. New American Standard trans correctly translates the Greek word porneus as immoralities. It, it is more than just one immorality. There's several. It's in the plural. The King James Version, the NIV does not do that, but the New American Standard does pick up on it. It is a plural word, the, immorality, the immoralities. Actually, it is the immoralities. It has a definite article before the word immorality. So he's talking about specific things, specific areas of sexual sin that could somehow attack us and, and attract us and tempt us. And so he says, avoid, separate yourself from these kinds of immoralities. Now, this word immoralities, understand this. When he says avoid it, separate yourself from it, the word immoralities in no way, in no way, 
incorporates the proper sexual intimacy in marriage. That's why we have to make a, a definition here. We must understand the difference of the sexual intimacy in marriage and fornication, immorality, the, the word here that we're to separate ourselves from. You see, we have a mixed up view of physical sexual behavior in, in people's lives in marriage. We have a mixed up view. I'm telling you, from the counseling that, that we do here at the church and from what I'm told, we've got a tremendously mixed up understanding of all of this. Perhaps there are women who have had a bad marriage and so therefore they bring their children up to think that even sex is shameful. Perhaps there's been an abusive sexual relationship somewhere in your past and because of that, anything physical to you brings you to think of sex in a shameful way. Perhaps there are those who combine immorality with the sexual intimacy in marriage and think it's all wrong. But the effect of this kind of thinking is devastating to the marriage relationship. You cannot drag your past into what God says is right and what God says is wrong. It will affect everything of the design God has given for marriage. At some point in our lives, and we've said this in many other contexts, at some point in our lives, we've got to stop living as products of our past and start living as products of the cross and let the Word of God renew our thinking so that we start thinking the way God says to think, not thinking the way our experience has dictated over the years. When we say that a believer is to separate himself from immoralities, we're not talking about the proper sexual intimacy that God has ordained within the marriage relationship. Now listen, the word immoralities refers to the sinful, premarital sexual relations one has with another person. It refers to the extramarital relationships that married people have with other people outside the marriage bond, adultery. It, it refers to the sin of homosexuality. It refers to the sin of incest and on and on and on. But again, in no way does it refer to the proper sexual intimacy within the marriage bonds. And I want to say another thing. So many parents, I don't know why they do it. Perhaps it's to keep their children from being as promiscuous as they were. They incorporate all of this into one category and they they're afraid for their children to understand the difference. And, and it's an ill effort to combat all of this past perhaps in their own life. Maybe they don't want their children to grow up the same way. And the child grows up equating all, anything to do with sex in a bad, evil context. And some young people, when they go into marriage, even dread the sexual intimacy God has ordained in marriage. Why? Because we've never defined it. We've never helped them realize the difference of immorality and the beautiful sexual union God has given to husband and to wife. And many parents never bother to explain the difference. And so the children grow up with a warped understanding of what they are to avoid in their life. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and verse 28 says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now unless somebody has invented another way, <laughs> there's only one way for that to take place. And it was a command by the holy God that 
created man and woman. So a definition that divides the, the sin of immorality with the beauty of, of proper sexual intimacy within marriage needs to be in our mind. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 15, Jesus said, Outside there are dogs and sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And the term immoral persons there comes from the same word we're looking at, porneus. And it's associated here in the context of dogs. And that sounds like a calloused way to, to look at this thing, but I want you to know, sexual sin outside of the marriage bond is nothing more than animalistic desire that, that, that means nothing more than sexual gratification. That's all it is. It's nothing different than a pack of dogs. That's all it is. And it's interesting that Jesus put those words in the context uh, up together, in the dogs and immoral behavior. You know what I, I want to say to the young people? Remember this. Young lady, when that man, or that young man has you in a compromising situation and tells you he loves you, I want you to know something, that if you're not married to him and he wants some type of sexual intimacy with you, that man in no way loves you and in no way even understands the word itself. Don't ever forget that. That's why the Apostle Paul says, flee, run. All he wants is nothing more than an animalistic desire to gratify his own personal needs. It's like a dog running with other dogs. He does not care. So remember that. There is a difference of the beauty of what God does within the marriage bond and what immoral sex is outside the bond of marriage. What is an act of love inside marriage? It's an act of lust outside of marriage. Fornication or immorality is never allowed for the believer, but sexual intimacy in marriage is not the same thing and is not only allowed but commanded by God. So I think as we move into this and to understand it, you need to realize there is a difference. Perhaps one of the questions that came from the Corinthians was, hey, I don't want to just get married. Maybe it comes from a woman. I don't want to get just married to this guy just so that he can have a license to gratify himself. Good grief. I don't want to do that. I think I'll stay single. And the Apostle Paul is putting it back in the right perspective. That's never a reason to get married. And matter of fact, there are great reasons to be married. And marriage done God's way is a very beautiful thing. But you take it out of its concept and out of its design and immediately you have devastation and destruction. So a definition. And this is not an easy subject to deal with, but we'll plug it right along verse by verse. Secondly, is God's defense. It's a defense system really against immorality. God's defense system against immorality. Now I want to tell you something, folks. Marriage is a beautiful plan that God came up with. We didn't come up with it God came up with it. And if it's done God's way, if God has the design and it's done God's way in His power, it's a beautiful thing. Outside of that, it is absolutely misery. Now, in verse 2 he says, But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. If you read that too callously, you can come up with the wrong understanding. The culture of man today is no different than the culture of Corinth of that day. Immorality was everywhere. 
Paul wrote of their immoral culture in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Look back for a minute. And we're only going to single out the sexual sin that they came out of just to show you what was in Corinth at that time. Just like it is today, no different. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. He said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, here we go, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And we explained all of those words when we went through it. I'm not going to do it this morning. And, he, and that's, that's, that's the sexual sins that he mentions. Then in verse 11 he says, And such were some of you. You came out of this kind of stuff, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now here are these believers who have come out of this kind of culture. It's all around them. Now if you read this wrongly, it makes it look like marriage is simply a means of having license to gratify yourself. Because of all these sexual immoralities, he says, let each man have his own wife, let each wife have her own husband. In other words, hey, honey, let's get married. Because that way we won't break the law. That way we can gratify our own sexual desires. Hey, that's a good reason to get married. That's what it looks like when you first read it. No way, Jose. That's not at all what he's saying. Don't ever think that sexual gratification is a grounds to get married. But if you read it without thinking about it, it could look like that's what Paul was saying. You see, that's never a ground. Matter of fact, people who get married based on physical attraction alone and sexual gratification, these are the marriages that never succeed. Marriage is built upon love and respect. Listen to one verse. In Ephesians 5, 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, immediately you begin to realize there's a depth here that's not found in the pagan animalistic society. It's not out there. This is two people that have understood something that evidently others have not understood. There's, there's that integrity that God puts into the marriage bond. You see, marriage is a covenant relationship. Now, I don't know how many of you were here when we did covenant. How many in here studied covenant with us years ago? Anybody? Well, a few of you. Boy, I'll tell you, a lot, a lot have come in since those days of studying the covenant, what the covenant was. Do you know that the word covenant is a biblical term? It's the word testament. We carry around two covenants with us all the time, the old covenant, the new covenant. And the word covenant had the idea of to cut. It had the idea of an agreement that was the strongest bond of human relationships known to man. You can't find another word that comes anywhere close to the bond that covenant means when two people enter into a covenant agreement. Matter of fact, we see bits and pieces of it in the Old Testament. Every culture has had some kind of covenant agreement since, since the beginning of time. David and Jonathan entered into a covenant agreement. There were two parts to the covenant agreement. The first part was identity, and you see this in every marriage ceremony. First of all, there was an exchange of robes. You don't see that part, but you see the idea. The covenant oneness, when one entered into the oneness of another. Uh, the, the change of robes had to do with possessions. I always tell the people that are getting married that I do the services for, and I'll tell them, I say, now listen, big boy, what you own is now hers. And I tell her, pretty little lady, what you own is now his. But the downside is what you owe and what you owe, both of you owe now, <laughs> because there's a covenant oneness here. All of it becomes common possession. 
Secondly, there was the exchange of belts. The belt was where they wore the swords. It's exactly what David did with Jonathan over in 2 Samuel. And so there's a, an exchange of belts. Now, they became protectors of one another. As David protected Jonathan, Jonathan protected David. And it was a beautiful picture here of that covenant bond that they had for one another. And how a man becomes a provider for his wife and how he chooses to enter into the sacred covenant agreement that he'll take care of her and provide for her and protect her. And she enters into the same agreement that she will possess him as her very own and that she will be faithful to him and that's her way of protecting that relationship. And then there was the exchange of names. It's like the disciples became Christians at Antioch. They took on the name actually of Christ. Abram in, in Genesis 15 became Abraham in Genesis 17. The H, the Yahweh sound. He actually took upon himself the name of God. Abraham. Sarai became Sarah, you see. And so there was a taking of a name. Just like when a woman gets married, she, she chooses to leave her right to live independently and then now becomes dependent. You see, you're entering into a brand new way of living and to express that covenant oneness, there's even exchanges of names. But then there was a, the, the part of co commitment. You had the first part was identity. The second part was commitment. And that was the toughest part. That's, that's the part you see in a marriage ceremony even today, the vows. They would cut each other's wrist. Well, first of all, there was a sacrifice that was very costly. A life had to be shed. And there was a, a sacrifice of an animal. And the animals were cut like it was in Genesis when, when God cut covenant with Abraham. He sacrificed the animals and put one half on one side and one half on the other side. Became known as the path of blood of the way of death. And the two people entering into covenant would walk into between those two halves. And they would then cut their wrist. The life is in the blood. And they would grab each other's arms and put the cuts together. I've been trying to get married couples to do this in the ceremonies that I've been doing but I can't find any red dresses. <laughs> and they would hold their arms together and they would, in this position they would take a rope and they would wrap it in a figure eight around the arms. And that figure eight is a picture of infinity for how long this covenant agreement was going to last. And while they were there, the blood of one flowing into the blood of the other, they would say their vows to each other. You don't think they didn't understand the seriousness of this commitment? You think this was some gratification of an animalistic desire? Oh no, there'd been a lot of thought going into this, a lot of love going into this, a lot of seeking going into this. This was a commitment for life because only death could part that covenant. And once they had said the vows to one another, then they would put a, a, a powder in that cut so it would form a scar. So everywhere they would go, anywhere they were, they would be marked by the fact that they were in covenant with somebody. I wonder if when Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, after Jonathan had died and David had taken the kingdom, and David sent for Mephibosheth because we found out that he still lived. And I wonder if when Mephibosheth came in and David said, you're going to eat at my table, you're going to eat at my table, because they were enemies as far as Mephibosheth was concerned. He didn't realize his daddy, Jonathan, had cut covenant with David, the king. Because of that covenant, it involved the family. And so therefore, I wonder if he was sitting at the table that day. And I wonder if one of the servants must have walked by him and said, you louse, you don't deserve to be here. And David heard it. And David looked, leaned over and said, Mephibosheth, pass the biscuits. Mephibosheth reached over and grabbed the biscuits. And when he handed them to David, the robe fell off his arm. And there was the cut in his wrist. And for the first time in his life, Mephibosheth knew why he could sit at the king's table. Covenant was everything. Covenant was a bond. 
Covenant was the strength of a relationship. And then once they had done this, they had a, a time of offering to, to give a memorial. There was usually a covenant flock of sheep. I'm, sorry, I'm sure most couples that I marry are glad that we don't do it this way anymore. <laughs> Can you see bringing in 700 sheep? Okay, this is your, or uh, some seedlings to plant a little forest. And as the trees would grow up, we give rings and put on the third left hand uh, finger so that the people can be reminded of a covenant relationship they're in. The ring is round. <laughs> Fingers also get fat. The ring is round. <laughs> That everlastingness again. And it's also a precious metal, the, the pure, righteous love that God has placed within us. I used to think when I first got married that if this ring fell off my hand, something would happen to my marriage. And finally, dawned on me there wasn't anything mystical about it. It's just a reminder. It's a reminder that God who lives in me enables me to keep the vows that I make to my wife. It's not my love for her. It's his love in me that he'll manifest for her. And it's a reminder. I'm in covenant with God and I'm in covenant with my wife. And then they would have a meal. And of course you see this at weddings. The groom standing there. And the wife cramming cake in his mouth, you know. And they eat and they drink together. That's even seen at Mount Sinai when Moses came down. They said, you go up and tell God. We'll do everything he told us to do. We'll enter into that sacred covenant. And they condemned themselves by doing that, by the way. God had them set up. Because a man has to see himself lost before he can ever be saved. So the law became a tutor to lead them until grace would come. But you see, the picture is all through Scripture. And marriage is much more than some guy saying to some woman, hey, we don't want to sin before God, so let's get married so we can gratify our sexual needs. Are you kidding? What kind of animals does, is mankind? You see, it's integrity. It's a covenant. There's no way in the world that's what Paul is saying here. But what he is saying is well worth remembering. By the way, the last thing they would do in the covenant is pronounce each other's friends. I love that. Jesus said in John 15, you're no longer slaves. You're my, what? You're my friend. I'll tell you what, the greatest thing about the relationship with my wife is not just the physical gratification, those kinds of things, but the fact that she is my friend. I'll tell you what, there are a lot of marriages where people don't even like each other, much less love one another. They've never thought the thing through. And I'll tell you what, it's just like it's salvation. What you committed to when you bowed before Jesus Christ, you may still be learning. You're not working toward full commitment. You're coming from it. It's the same way with marriage. When you enter into marriage, you may not understand everything you've committed to, but you will be reminded along the way. And it's not some decision you choose to do now. It's some decision you chose to do then. And you need to come back and fulfill that as God says to fulfill it. But in no way can you take this verse and say that God is saying to satisfy your animalistic desire, get married. It's better to marry than burn with lust. It's ridiculous. That's not what he's saying. However, however, <laughs> sort of an enigma here. If it's done God's way, marriage becomes a protection from the immoral society that we live in. Now, this is beautiful if you can see it. It's not the reason you get married. But marriage in itself, God's design of marriage in itself is His protection, His defense system for married believers from the immoral temptations of this world. You say, how in the world can marriage prevent immorality? Watch. 
but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. You say, well, so? Now watch. The phrase, let each man have his own wife, and each, each woman have her own husband, are phrases referring to those already married. He's not saying, everybody get married, now get married. No, no, he's talking to the married. And he's saying, if you want to set the right example for singles wondering whether to get married or not, this is the way you ought to live. This verse and the verses to follow seem to be a team effort that the couple begins to work together toward. What he says should eliminate sexual immorality in the believer's life. Let each man have his own wife. The word have is echo. And echo means to have and keep on having, since in the present sense, in the sense of possessing her. Not possessive of her, but in possessing her. Boy, I'll tell you what, some people will take that thing the wrong way, become possessive of their wives, and you'll, you'll drive her to the point of insanity. But it means simply to possess her, but it goes on. It's in the present active, as I said. The word for own, his own wife, is have to. Now you say, Wayne, why are you even bringing that out? Because that's not the word used when it says for the wife, to have him as her own. There are two different words here. And what it means for the husband here, it means as someone who's a part of himself. Whoa, I've heard that before. Look over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Let me show you something here. This is an attitude a man has towards his wife. And if you don't have that, then no wonder the problems come as they do. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28. She's part of you. I tell you what, all the men I know take care of the part they have. But she's part of you. In other words, you love her as you love yourself. In, in Ephesians 5, 28, so husbands ought to also love their own wives. How? As their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And that is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you want to protect your wife from the immoral temptations that she will face then you treat her as if she is a part of you. And when you approach, and particularly contextually, the sexual intimacy in marriage, and you approach her as part of yourself, that changes your whole attitude in the way in which you go about doing what you do. Well, the man is the first one spoken to, as usual in Scripture. If you get the men right, I think we'd have a lot of happy marriages around. But then secondly, he says, let each woman have her own husband. Now, everything's the same until you come down to have her own husband. The word for own there is not have to. It's the word idios. And idios does not mean exactly the same thing. It's very similar. But what it's saying here is, this man is to be exclusively hers and no one else's. In other words, this man can belong to no one else but her. And she is going to make sure he knows that. And as you begin to approach it from that angle, the protectiveness of temptations that's out there with other women or other men begin to fall away because God has a defense system built right into the marriage relationship which he has established. Now, in this verse, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Again, there is that team effort. As I approach my wife, I have to approach her, God says, as part of myself. As she approaches me, she approaches me to make sure I know 
that I'm the only one in her life. That, that I, I understand that everything, anything that, that, my, that, there, that is needed there, she is there to somehow seek to meet. And therefore, the two begin to work in that cooperative effort to protect one another. I thought about Paul's expression to the elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. And many people beat this thing to death and they say it's got to be the husband of one wife because that's the way it's translated. So the way if it's translated, it's got to be right. But I want to show you another way of looking at that. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Isn't it interesting? Above reproach is character. Husband of one wife is status. And then he goes right back to character. Why would he do that? But if you change it and realize that wife and woman are the same word in the Greek and say that every man should be a one woman man, that's character. And that fits exactly what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That man treats her as part of himself. She, in in turn, responds back to him that he's the only one in her life. And people look at this couple and realize, hey, buddy, there there is a boundary built around them. Don't touch because they are meant for one another. And that sets the example for the church to follow in the same way. It says the very same words to the deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 12. And so he says, hey, it's in the leadership to where you begin to see this example. In the leadership, the man treats his wife as part of himself. And his wife looks to him as her very own possession. And people understand this couple hands off. Because they live in covenant relationship with one another. So God's definition, you've got to separate immorality from the sexual intimacy within marriage. That, that decent, rightful sexual intimacy in marriage. But also secondly, you've got to realize God has a built-in defense system for those of you that are worried about getting married. If you do it God's way, God has his own protective system in that to where you protect one another as in a covenant bond. But then thirdly, our determination. In other words, there's some choices we've got to make in this thing. And he begins to build off of verse 2 when he moves into verse 3. In verse 3, Paul outlines how the husband and wife protect each other as their own possession. This should be their determination. Again, he begins with the man. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. That's New American Standard. Let me hang that verse right here for a second. Most of us have that this morning. But let me show you what the King James says. And, I, and I'm going back and forth because the Texas Receptus is how I translate even the New American Standard. The reason is I have more confidence in the Texas Receptus than I do the Nestle text. And that's all right. Whether you do or don't, that's just the way I do it. But I like what the Texas Receptus does that the Nestle text doesn't do. Let me show you. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3, King James Version, look at the difference. Let the husband render unto the wife do benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto her husband. Now he adds a word there that's not in the New American Standard. And, and I think it's very important. It's the word benevolence. What in the world is he talking about? The words fulfill his duty, New American Standard, and the word render, King James Version, are both the same word, ophile. And ophile means it's the word for debt. <laughs> you owe each other a debt. The husband owes his wife a debt. The wife owes her husband a debt. Now, that's very important to understand. A debt is not what you can do for me, it's what I can do for you, what I owe you because of the relationship that we're in. But in the King James Version, as I said, we have the word benevolent thrown in. And that's the word ethnoin, 
F. Neon. I'll say it that way. Those sparrows will have a heart attack. It only occurs, <laughs> it only occurs in the Texas Receptus, and it's only found one other place. But I want to tell you, I think in that other place it shows you what he's talking about here, and I think it adds so much to the thing. Listen, if I go into my marriage and say, well, I gotta pay her a debt. I mean, I owe her a good grief. You know, that's not the way you do it. It's the attitude that you do something, and but the word benevolence picks that up. In Ephesians 6, 7. If you want to flip over there for a minute, it shows you how the word is used. And I think if you put that understanding back to the verse, you've got a beautiful picture that Paul is drawing for us of how we protect one another. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 7. And it's the first three words, New American Standard translation. He says, with goodwill, that's it, render service as to the Lord and not to men. It is better translated, the goodwill that is due to the wife. In other words, back in our verse, we do, it'd be men, you owe a debt, but out of goodwill, you do this for your wife. You see, it's not, again, it's not some mechanical thing that you do. But have you ever been to some of these marriage seminars? Excuse me, I'm not saying they're all wrong. But I tell you what, I come away more confused than I do anything else. To me, I've got 17 rules or principles I'm supposed to do as a husband to my wife, and I can't remember them all. To me, it's like playing golf. I mean, I go out to play golf. Keep your head down. Keep your left arm straight. Mm -hmm. Line the ball up right here. That's right. And all the different things they tell you to do, and I can't remember it. You ought to play golf with Rick. Rick goes into a coma trying to remember all those things. <laughs> Rick, Rick, are you all right? I mean, I mean it's amazing <laughs> what happened. Well, it's the same way when you get all these rules in your mind. What he's saying here is, hey, listen, it's the whole attitude that you're going about it. It's going to take care of itself. If you understand you owe her a debt and you love her and you love God, God's going to enable you to do that. And the way it communicates is going to be totally different than if you went to some seminar, took 17 principles, said, okay, honey, step number one. <laughs> no, it's not going to work. You're going to miss. It is better that a, a man to show goodwill that is due to his wife. It has heart and feeling behind it. It's if he's saying to a husband and to the wife, recognize you owe each other the attention that he or she deserves. You owe the other person to think well only of them. Give to your spouse which, that which will eliminate any suspicion that you would rather be with someone else. Now, there's, your, there's your protective plan right there. How many people go outside the marriage bond and commit immoral relationships with other people somewhere because of a failure inside the home, not doing it God's way? If we just do it God's way, then God says it'll work. There are needs only a husband can meet for a wife and only a wife can meet for a husband, and God knows that. And so we go about it with goodwill, realizing we owe a debt to our marriage partner. The context is sexual relationship. In the sexual relationship with husband and wife, God never allows either to do what they do for their own pleasure because they owe a debt. What they do is for the pleasure of the other one. And you see, automatically this takes us out of the paganistic, animalistic society which does what it does to get what it wants. No, no, no. In the marriage relationship, it's exactly the opposite. You do what you do for the pleasure of the other but when both are thinking that way and both are living that way, that's when the design works the way God intended for it to work. So I was studying this, it came to my mind, the context of 1 Corinthians. I'm telling you folks, you take grace out 
of the mix and all you have is a legalistic formula that nobody can live up to. But if you live attached to Christ, and that's been our context for six chapters now going into chapter seven. If you live attached to Christ and you're letting Christ empower you and enable you to do the things he's commanded you to do, he takes care of the desire. He takes care of the goodwill. He takes care of the attitude. Like in Philippians, in chapter one, Christ is my life. In chapter two, Christ is my attitude. I can think towards my wife as someone better than myself in the area of pleasing her because Christ in me enables me to do just that. To a couple having marital difficulty, Paul would say, first of all, make sure that your walk with God is what it ought to be. Make sure that he is what your life is attached to. You know, I give a triangle in marriage as an illustration, marriage ceremonies, and I put Jesus up here. I put the groom down here and the bride down here. And what I tell them is right there standing in front of me, goo-goo-eyed and in a trance and don't even know what day it is, much less what I'm saying. But I'm trying to show them something that if they'll live for each other every day, their marriage is going to fall apart. But if that groom will live for Jesus every day and that bride will live for Jesus every day, sounds contradictory, doesn't it? If you'll look at the triangle as you go upward, look how much closer it draws those two points that are out here. You see, as I live this way, God draws me inwardly this way. And that's the way it works. The only way it works. So if you've got a problem in your marriage life, before you go running to somebody to solve it, you go to the cross and let Jesus solve what's wrong in your heart towards that other partner. You get attached to him. And let God begin to handle your attitude. Let God begin to handle your perspective. Let God begin to renew your mind. Then come and let somebody come alongside you and walk you through the steps. But first of all, run to the cross. Run to the cross and make sure you're a part of what God's doing here and you understand his design for what has been destroyed in your life. Paul is showing not only how we should sexually relate to our spouse, but also is showing how to protect each other from the bombardment of immoralities out there in the world. Think for a minute. If one marriage partner does not appreciate the other, just one. If one marriage partner does not realize that he or she owes a debt to the other to meet their sexual needs as well as other things. If one marriage partner is not willing to fulfill the marital obligation in ridding the other of any suspicion that they have eyes for somebody else, then no wonder we have so many divorces in the church of Jesus Christ in the 20th century. The questions that were asked we don't have. We just have the answers. But we're beginning to understand more and more what the questions must have been by the answers that Paul has given. To the single person wondering about marriage, seeing all the broken marriages, seeing the fact that husbands running off on, should I get married? Just stay single. Let me tell you something. If God leads you to the right person and you enter into that as a covenant relationship, I promise you, as you seek by the grace of God enabling you to live the way God's designed it to be, you'll never know greater fulfillment on, on this earth. That's what God promises you. So don't let the discouragement of what you see around you destroy your understanding of what God says marriage can be if that's what he has for you in your life. Don't let other people's failures stop you from being obedient to what God's leading you to do. Don't let it scare you off. And I want to close with an illustration. I thought about it. <laughs> My time's up, so I'm closing. We'll come back. Don't worry. We'll pick up again. But, you know, let's just say you're riding down the road. Uh, Cindy Stewart's a good friend of mine, and I think of our church. She's a state trooper. 
haven't seen her in a long time, but she used to be in our church. Had a, had a big uh, German shepherd. Used to put sunglasses on. I don't know if y'all, any of y'all remember, Cindy. Used to sing in the choir years ago. I always drive the speed limit anywhere around Chattanooga because <laughs> I know she's out there somewhere <laughs> and she would love nothing else than to catch me. But, but let's just say, let's just say you're speeding one day, kind of like Rick around the perimeter of Atlanta or some, you know, you're just driving a little too fast. <laughs> I picked on you twice today, Rick. And let's just say you're driving a little too fast. None of us ever do that. Do and let's just say a policeman pulls you over. And let's say that policeman is the rudest person you have ever met in your life. I mean, it destroys your whole understanding of the law enforcement agency in our country. And you leave that scene and that, that, that situation hating policemen. You hate it. Well, friend, you can hate policemen all you want to, but you're still going to pay the ticket. And the idea is this. Put your eyes on the right person. Get your eyes off of failed marriages and get your eyes off of things that don't work for those who don't do it God's way. And remember, marriage is God's institution. And if done God's way, is the greatest fulfillment you could ever have in your life. So if you're a single here today, and you're wondering, should I even pray for a mate? <laughs> well, now remember, don't let failed marriages stop you from being a part of what God says can be, and he wants it to be, if you'll just do it. His way. Well, inch by inch, life's a cinch. Yard by yard, life's way too hard. So we're just going to inch our way through chapter 7. It won't all come together at one time, but hopefully it's speaking to your heart. Wayne, talk to me about Christmas. Okay, Christmas. Jesus came and died and was born of a virgin. You, everybody believe that? But I want to tell you something. If you stay at Christmas, you've missed the whole message. He also went to the cross. But if you stay at Easter, you've missed the whole message because he rose from the dead. And now he's, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and his spirit lives in us. And he's saying to you and me, forget the ABCs, let's move on. And let's grow in our relationship with him. Let's learn how to live it and just talk about it. See. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 